This podcast is produced by Elmcore Youth and Adult Activities. Welcome everyone to episode three, a true harm reduction approach to the opioid epidemic. My name is Saida Dunstan. I'm the executive director here at Elmcore. And tonight's guests are Joe Turner from Exponents and Cassandra Frederick, the new, new, I mean, super new. Yes. Like this week kind of new. And well-deserved. And, and well-deserved, well yes. Executive Director of Drug Policy Alliance. Welcome, Hooray! Hooray! <laughs> Thanks for having us, Saida. Thank you. I'm excited. You. I'm Joe Turner, the President and CEO of Exponents. Exponents is the oldest community-based harm reduction agency dedicated to providing compassionate engagement of the most vulnerable New Yorkers. They provide a range of human services, including harm reduction, drug treatment, HIV wellness services, prison reentry services, advocacy, and professional training. Joe is also a lawyer by trade, um, so we won't hold that against him. Thank you. But, uh, <laughs> You're far too but, kind. Uh, there's a part that was taken out of his abbreviated bio that I need to make sure that we say here. He is from Brownsville. You want to finish it, Joe? Never ran, never will. That's right. <laughs> and so I just want to make sure that you guys know that Joe is here. He has never run away from any fight. He's been doing a lot of right. civil rights work. Um, basically was motivated and pushed forward to do this work through his admiration of other civil rights lawyers when he was young. And we're just grateful that he continues to stay in social justice. So thank you, Joe, for being here. Thank and you. then Lovely. we have... The most powerful young person in the game. And by young, I'm just saying she's a little bit younger than me. But Cassandra Frederick. And me. And you, right? Come on. Cassandra Frederick is the newly appointed executive director of the Drug Policy Alliance, a nonprofit that works to end the war on drugs, which has disproportionately harmed Black. Latinx, Indigenous, immigrant, and LGBTQ communities, and build alternatives grounded in science, compassion, health, and human rights. Cassandra has been at DPA since she was an intern, Um, a true kind of um, example of what it means to um, build leadership and to then be able to take leadership. I want to acknowledge, because this is her first week and she's on um, Elmcore's podcast, and we're grateful to have her, and we're very proud of her and on all the experiences yeah. she brings. And we want to say in the history of Elmcore, because it's a 55-year-old organization started by people of color, for people of color, we're excited to see a woman of color lead such a strong and large agency as DPA. And in the um, history of organizations like Elmcore to see that the people who paved the way for us paved it with you in mind. So I just wanted to say thank you and welcome. You. DPA is very lucky to have you. Beautiful. I appreciate it. So please just speak a bit about your work and how you came to wanting to address substance use disorders and human justice in our communities. Well, uh, well, Thank you, thank you, Saida. And uh, again, you know, my love and heart goes to Cassandra as well. Um, you know, my uh, my journey and path. I mean, early on, I, I think I I came to understand that you just couldn't treat, you know, you just couldn't 
have substance use treatment, um, you couldn't divorce it from like community trauma. And, you know, we started Exponents in 1988 and we looked at what was going on in the gay community with this HIV AIDS crisis. And, you know, back then, 88, there were no medications. Uh, people were dying left and right. Um, but especially those folks that were using substances, you know, sort of died in project hallways and, you know, didn't get the press. But we, we looked at the gay community and we saw how they mobilized and they mobilized across income and class lines and they advocated for uh, medication, trying to reduce stigma. But what we found out was that they didn't tell folks to stop having sex, <laughs> you know. They, they, they promoted uh, safer sex and mobilized their community. So what we did early on at Exponus and I found that was that, you know, we were funded, we saw it as an agency funded to provide um, uh, uh, <clears throat> education, uh, risk reduction methods for former prisoners, you know, cats that were upstate coming down um, and facing this, this, this new disease and um, it was ravaging. So we, we couldn't wait uh, for people to get sober and clean before they could access our services. And as, as Cassandra know, and you probably know, Saida, that's saying that the dead addicts don't recover. So uh, we were forced to meet, uh, well, yeah, to be effective, to meet folks where they were, whether they were using drugs or not using drugs. And our goal was to build community. Um, you know, we also saw that, that notions of, of, of wellness included helping the individual, helping the family, and helping the community. Um, and that, that's how it started out. Honestly, I feel like I always feel um, like a fraud when people ask me this question because doing this work, I've, I fell into it. Um, and I think it's so interesting getting older and being more rooted and understanding that, that I realized that it, it's not, it to me it's by accident, but by, but to the universe, it's not by accident right that um in order for me to figure out like what liberation could look like um I think it was it was important for me to end up working at DPA and like really um confronting some of the biases that I had around people who use drugs and addiction in general so when I say like I fell into it by accident you know I went I went to social work school and DPA was not the placement I chose it was the placement that I got and going into DPA, you know, I was, I had a clarity that there was differential treatment around drugs, yes. um, but I didn't have a clarity about the motivations around drugs. I also didn't, I suspected that there was an intentionality around why people had access to certain drugs or why the laws were written in that way. But I think I was really naive to think that, you know, they created these laws, race blind, and then, you know, they just reinforced them in communities of color because that's how racism works. And I think when I got the understanding that these policies around people who use drugs were intentional and that that also meant that our people had less access to the resources that they needed to thrive and survive, that motivated me to stay in the work. Um, because it, it felt like an affront, like this is an intentional strategy to kill our community. 
Um, and I think that is one of the biggest things that I've learned in my time so far and is what has motivated me to learn more and more about those connections because when you start to peel away at it, then you see that it's just so much bigger. It makes sense why the the black mater, maternal mortality rate is so high. It makes sense why you know black women are dying of heart disease. It makes sense why we have such struggles with diabetes because the same policies and infrastructures and administration and regulations that are in place for people that use drugs are in place for indigenous folks, are in place for Latinx folks, and are especially in place for black folks because policymaking was intentional regardless of who you are. So thank you for that. Um, and thank you for just kind of talking about how you guys got to the work and, and the reason for this work. I think it's really important, especially for the young people that are going to be listening to this podcast, to kind of listen to people's journey and how they get somewhere, right? Um, it's this kind of work, hopefully people don't just end up on. I know you said that you kind of fell into it, but I don't even really think it's really a falling into. It's yeah. just, you have to be on a journey to even right. get there. Right, um, right. That's right. And I agree that, that, I mean, circumstances align. It's like this choreography that brings us to this point. And, you know, some folks may call it circumstance. I, I, I don't see it like that. I mean, if it was up to me uh, back then, at this age now, I thought I'd be on like some Caribbean island <laughs> with my third wife, you know, clipping the... Uh, of course, don't let your wife hear this. Don't let your wife hear this. Make sure she don't hear this podcast. She, she's not even home, so don't play <laughs> this back. Right, right. But, I mean, I, 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 I was drawn to it, and it's a continuing, growing journey. I mean, the, um, uh, the, the first time I met Cassandra, and really, um, I mean, she is such a power of example that I was just, I mean, I, I, mean, I was just shaken from you know, from core to circumference with her love for the work. And it was at the time when we both uh, had white executive directors and, you know, the normal, uh, you know, uh, uh, structure of these human services agency agencies. And I love to hear Saidi talk, Saida talk about the purpose of nonprofits. But I mean, there was you know, you'd have mostly black and, and uh, Latino, uh, what they call peers and workers and the other level of uh, mid-management. And then, you know, they were led by, by, by white folks, well-intentioned, I guess, white liberals, you know, but there was no getting to that point. And, um, you know, she, you know, when, when I became executive, uh, when I became a CEO of Exponents, she was so supportive, you were so supportive. And then we were all rooting for Cassandra uh, to move this up because, you know, we were folks framing this in the real lens of racial inequity and systemic racism, even within, you know, the human services sector. Um, so, you know, previous to that, you know, folks didn't, you know, you don't want to look at their own house. So, um, you know, I'm just, yeah, I, I, I don't see it by accident that she is where she is deservedly. And so are you, Saida. Um, I mean, we could talk about this for the next hour, but I'm just uh, excited. Yes, to Joe, but that's not what we're here for. We're not to I talk know. about, we're not here to talk right. about us. But, I, but, I, also, <laughs> but I, I mean, I think one thing that is really important to me, and it's one that I, I, I keep pushing, is that I think that, um, Joe, 
for you to be executive director of a <clears throat> for me to be executive director of DPA, there needed to be a change in the space, right? That we are, that we, we have the potential <laughs> to bring forward a lot of change, but that we're not changed people. We are, we are as a result of changes that have already occurred, right? Yes. And that those changes started 55 years ago when Elm Corps was founded, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And showing that Black people have the acumen and understanding to deal with the complex human condition. And honestly, I think we, we always fit that prerequisite because we are Black people that, are, that live on the Western Hemisphere, right? And we are actually not supposed to be here. And right. our mere presence on this part of the world is um, reflective of the violence of the transatlantic slave trade, right? And yeah. so just recognizing that as a prerequisite sets up the conversation for us to dig deeper and have a more sophisticated analysis around the human condition. Um, and as organizers, understanding how that shows up for us. Absolutely. And, and, I, and, I, and I'm not, and I'm sorry, Saida. Go ahead, Joe, go, go. She struck something. And you are so right. We're not supposed to be here. I'm not supposed to be here. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm 70 years old, but born and raised in Brownsville, navigating Vietnam, navigating heroin, navigating police. And somehow, you know, I got through the hoops. I'm not supposed to be here. I mean, we all have those stories where at every, at any point we could have been knocked off like so many of the folks that I know that are no longer here. So, but we stand on their shoulders. You know, and so the good uh, thing, and it's so funny, we're going to show people in this conversation how we weave, remember, how I said just now, we're not here to talk about ourselves, but this right. conversation about harm reduction, what we're doing right now in this dialogue, I'm going to show how it weaves into when we talk. Cool. So I want to kind of ask the question of the history, right, of mm -hmm. harm reduction approaches. And Cassandra, to your point, Elmcore is harm reduction, Right. Elm Corps was created because young people were in the streets in an unsafe time. And so people from the community wanted to reduce their harm. They wanted to be able to find recreational activities for them to do to reduce harm. And when two years into it, we realized that, hey, we can't just give them baseball and basketball. Right. We've got to figure out because this heroin thing is serious, right? And it's it's in our neighborhood and it's causing people to go to prison. It's causing people to die. It's causing people to leave their families. We need to figure something out. And so we got into the, into the business and I will say it is still a business, right? We got into the business of drug treatment with the understanding that we've always been a part of every American business, but we were going to shift how we were gonna participate in the business structure, right? We weren't going to be waiting for someone to create a business of um, charity in our community. We were going to help and do right. our own empowerment of our own community. But I think that it's a perfect way to segue for you guys to talk a little bit of the, the history of harm reduction and what does harm reduction mean in regards to folks um, living with a substance use disorder. Here at Elmcore, we purposefully do not call people addicts. Um, we don't um, kind of ascribe to that. We know the term, we understand where it comes from, but you know, it's really, it's critically important with language that we say it's people 
yes. living with a substance use disorder, just like we talk about people who are formerly incarcerated. Um, ideally, we have to always make people human first. So talk a little bit about the harm reduction approach, the history of it, especially when it comes to people living with substance use disorders. Yeah, actually, uh, uh, harm reduction, but I tell you, you know, for a uh, comprehensive history, Dr. Sam Roberts is like the foremost authority on this bad boy, and uh, especially its intersection with racism. But, you know, I, I think uh, part of the history, I don't, I don't know if it's codified, but I know anecdotally when I look back, I mean, um, I mean, there were early iterations of harm reduction that go back to Native Americans. And, you know, they used to have these circles of conversation where um, they would talk about issues uh, that would come up in the tribe and issues that, you know, demanded uh, community attention. And they would engage those members of the tribe and the conduct might have been detrimental or outside of, you know, the integrity of the tribe, but there was no blame and no judgment and they would deal with it like that. Um, but, but a little further on, and I don't know, folks may uh, disagree, but I, I see some of the early foundational concepts, foundational concepts of, of, of harm reduction um, in the early days of AA. And I say that um, in terms of some of the early principles that were, were, were really diverted and, and put to other use of like one alcoholic talking to another. Um, there, were, there were early concept of what they called 12 step calls. Uh, and a 12 step call was where, you know, classically somebody in your family is, uh, you know, really is just uh, drinking to excess and to their, to, their, to their detriment. You call up AA, and they would dispatch like two AA members. And, but on the way to the house, if this person had the DTs, they would stop by the liquor store, <laughs> pick up a half a pint of gin and bring it to you know, the prospective, prospective member's house. And they, uh, you know, and they would give them some, you know, give them some the gin just to, you know, to, to calm them down, reduce those DTs so you know, they could bring the message. Now, now, don't get me wrong. I mean, AA still called for abstinence, and uh, and I've talked to folks that there was really still, you know, stark racism back then. But my point is, is that it was, you know, a peer-driven, non-professional, um, uh, non-professional uh, nature of that therapeutic process. Um, uh, and then, and I was talking to Tracy about this. Uh, there, there were still some notions of harm reduction in the therapeutic community, you know, in, in, in residential treatment. And um, I know folks like, you know, that, that, that we can beat up on the history of, of TCs, there are some excesses, but it also produced produce peer-driven services. And most importantly, they fostered the idea of community uh, and, and advocacy. Um, so uh, as, as it went uh, on, um, I mean, with exponents, we took some, like a bit of each, like a little recipe of each, uh, uh, each of those modality to, to really bring it to a, a non-judgmental um, uh, engagement. But it does have a fascinating history. And I'll say this and I'll shut up. I won't say nothing else. But harm reduction, we talked about this early on. 
harm production, uh, you know, it's, it's not ideology. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's keeping people alive without condition. It's uh, harm reduction is mercy. Um, you know, the receptionist, when you come up to exponents, she's able to see the eye in the eye of every person who gets off that elevator. Uh, she can see wellness um, and, and services in their eye. Like, we, we, don't, we don't empower anybody. We just try to, because you can't do that. You just got to try to create the conditions where, where that occurs. Um, and, and lastly, I said, I've heard someone say that, that harm reduction was um, like a radical welcome, <laughs> you know, like, hey, I'm glad to see you. I mean, not to judge you, not to blame you, uh, but, you know, I'm standing in empathy with uh, all the hardships. I'm not standing in judgment, but I'm standing in empathy, you know, so um, uh, that, that's how I see it. And that's it for me on the podcast. See you later. I'm going to eat my watermelon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Joe. Um, you know, I think one of the things that I have really enjoyed about learning more about harm reduction and being in community with Black harm reductionists um, is how so much of harm reduction, the way that we talk about it in our fields, focuses on substance use. Um, and that so many of the underlying principles and the scaffolding of harm reduction is really about how do we reduce the harms associated with the state um, and how the state interacts with us as communities. And so often when I think about black harm reduction, I think about the strategies that our ancestors have used to reduce the harms associated with us being black. Mm, mm. All the way from what were the strategies that they used um, when they were dealing with slave masters, right? What were the strategies that they used in sharecropping and reconstruction um, through Jim Crow? What were those strategies? I think about, you know, the kind of generational fights um, that I grew up watching around um, the pants sagging, right? And um, people being like, you know, if you don't if you wear your pants at your waist, you know, law enforcement won't harass you because they will think you are one of the good ones, right? The reasons why um, we were not encouraged to wear our hair natural, um, but to wear our hair in particular ways. So we could reduce the harms and the discrimination and the punishment that comes with being black, right? And so I often think about how often our communities have engaged in harm reduction without having that name, right? We have always been trying to figure out how can we reduce, reduce the harms associated with our identity. And when I think about harm reduction in the context of our work, it really is how do we, like harm reduction is not just about how do we reduce the harms associated with substance use. It's also, it, it always has been, how do we reduce the harms of the state? Um, and I find that um, it's critically important when we think about the history for us to be talking about the very real conversations that the pioneers were having about reducing the harms associated with the state as they um, formalized harm reduction as an institution. Um, and that's important because I find that when we're not talking about reducing the harms associated with the state, we flatten the very philosophy and strategy that we're trying to um, embow to get towards alternatives. 
right? So when we make harm, reduce harm reduction to just naloxone or reduce harm reduction to medication, tre medication treatment, which both of them technically to me do not, are not harm reduction, right? Like, um, because I feel like they're both medications. Naloxone is an EpiPen for drugs. Like, I don't think that, like, to me, harm reduction is like, how do we give people access to syringes, right? Like, how do we give people access to safer smoking kits? Like, what does that look like? How do we teach people how to use drugs and not die? To me, that is the philosophy around reducing the harms associated with drug use. Um, giving people access to medications like methadone or buprenorphine is not reducing the harm. It's giving them medication. Giving people naloxone is giving someone an asthma pump. It's giving someone an EpiPen. That's not like that's not harm reduction in this way. And I think it's important for us to play a real strong role because the state is working overtime to capture the philosophy of harm reduction as another means to control our community. Right. And I think it's Saida, I see you. So jump in. Yeah. Because I think what you're saying is is critically important, right? It's especially even when you're talking about seeing harm reduction and saying that forms of mats is not harm reduction. And is it a syringe exchange or is it a safe injection site or is it that? I think one of the things that we need to continually have in conversations about what harm reduction really is, which is why I said Elmcore started as a harm reduction organization. And so the harm reduction that was used was a baseball, right? Like, let's be very clear. It wasn't a syringe exchange. It wasn't, it was a baseball because to your point is what have people done historically to keep folks from harm, right? From, from being harmed. And so a part of it too, for me, is forget what the treatment is, right? Forget all of the, the processes of the treatment exactly. because, because people with a chronic condition do need treatment. If I have asthma, I do need treatment. I do need an asthma bump because if my chest starts to collapse, I need to breathe, right? So we respect it and it shouldn't be the can you have this, this, or this, or it's one. The question really from a harm reduction perspective is if we're not willing to offer all options, if all things are not available, have you really created a dynamic where there can be a place that you could say can hold people harmless? Because right. the only place I can be held harmless is when I can find what will work for me. That's right. What is going to happen that's going to reduce my harm? You know, one of the things that we want to talk about is we talk all the time about harm reduction and trauma informed. And we, I said before, we talk, you know, I said this in our very first podcast um, as leaders, as black leaders, as leaders who consider ourselves more to be organizers then we consider ourselves to be CEOs and executive directors, but recognize that we are an organizing outfit. The thing that we've learned is to have the conversation before the conversation. And in our dialogue before we got on this podcast um, a couple of days ago was to really talk about the fact that if we're not talking about trauma, but and just talking about being trauma informed and in harm reduction, but we're not talking about hope and healing and creating healing techniques, then all we do is we, un we unearth all this pain in the human condition and we don't give it any sense of hope. Okay. So when you guys were talking earlier about um, kind of what we've created for, our, for each other, right? 
Um, Joe, you talked about when you got to your position, wanting Cassandra, Cassandra supporting you, me supporting, you know, you, you supporting me, Cassandra, like we, we do this. That is a form of harm reduction because in the roles that we sit in and the world and the structures that we sit in, there are people always gunning for us, especially as we move up. So I think to your point, Cassandra, we have to talk about what harm reduction is from a healing perspective to right. address the traumas that we're trying to reduce a level of harm. Because I'm sorry, there's some traumas I've experienced in my life. There is no treatment for. That's right. That's I've right. lost a child. You can't treat that. That's right. That's right. Absolutely nothing you need to do. I lost my mother. You will not treat that. Right. There's some traumas you cannot treat. You know? So right. what is the hope and what is the healing that harm reduction can bring to the field of substance use work? Whether we call it treatment or we're calling it recovery work, whatever y'all want to call it this week, whatever language you want to use this week, what are we doing to reduce harm, provide healing for people who have been historically traumatized and some traumas you can't fix. Right. So I just, so, okay. I'm excited. This is why we wanted I you know. in the conversation. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> I think the biggest, I think one of the things for me that people are going to get annoyed from me saying over and over again is like, I hear you when you're like harm reduction, we need to infuse more hope and healing. But I think I think one of the things that I am, am coming to and, you know, just being frank, like as an abolitionist, like I'm at this point where I'm like, the state is a distraction. And if we're spending all our time figuring out how to reduce all the harm associated with the state, what, like we're not creating the space for us to create the world that we want the world that we actually live in, right? The place where we will be harmless. Um, and so for me, harm reduction is also about, is, is not just about like reducing the harms, hope and healing, but it's also about like, so after you're healed, where do you go? Do we just put you back in the same place? It's like, who's doing the building? And I think the ultimate form of harm reduction is creating an alternative vision and it's creating an alternative world. If we're gonna reduce the harm, then we have to create the place where there is no harm, right? Or that we have better systems of managing harm. And I find that when we're having this conversation, it is absolutely crucial, um, especially when we're thinking about race and addiction and drugs and, and living, because what I have come to is that the systems that we are trying to reduce harms for, there is no reform for them, right? There's just, there's not. like. These systems cannot be reformed. They are built on cancerous foundations, right? And if, so say, like, say the C word, capitalism. The, yeah, <laughs> I mean, like you have capitalism, but you also have the very brute force of the state. Yeah. And I think about policing, mm -hmm. right? And I think there are so many different ways. And, you know, it's a conversation point in the conversation, it is, it is a point in, in conversation in harm reduction about what is the role of law enforcement. Because if we're gonna be honest, and we talked about this before, if we're saying that our places, our agencies, are places where people will be safe, how can they be safe when we see that law enforcement has un over outsized influence about who is coming into those places, 
what the regulations look like, how they can walk up in there and arrest people, like how they just sit outside the methadone clinic and turn people into confidential informants against people. Like what is what are the cultures that we are complicit in and that we are turning a blind eye to and are not challenging because of contracts, because of referrals, because we have to pay the bills. I mean, I think the hard thing about it is what does it mean to be a part, you know, I, you know, Joe, you said the C word in capitalism. It's also about what does it mean for us to be in an actual care profession? We are in a care profession that is monetized and therefore incentivized by capitalism. And we know inherently that capitalism harms people. And the people that we're working with and on the behalf of are the people that are most likely to be in the crosshairs of yes, capitalism. And so when we're talking about reducing the harms and we're talking about alternative visions, is it, are we moving to a place where we want hospitals to better prescribe methadone and buprenorphine? Or are we thinking about something completely different? Are we thinking about how do we build, the other C word is, how do we build the capacity within our community right. to right. hold each other? And see, the thing too about what you're saying, Cassandra, that's super deep. And, and so I want to also give clarity. When I talk about hope and healing, I'm talking about the ability just to survive, right? That's and that. and and survival is not thriving. It's not that's it's not living from a life of abundance. It's not right. any of that stuff. It's how do we get people that have been set back by so many, so many miles? How do we get them to get to some place to have that's these right. kinds of conversations? Because we're like we said, we're letting people in our living room. These are conversations we have all the time, right? Yeah. But we're letting people in to hear, but these are not the conversations that everyone can have. That's right. It's not because of intellect. It's not because of, of their, their capacity to understand. It's because they ain't got time nor space. That's it. To be That's having it. a conversation about That's what y'all going to do about what. I'm just, you know, and so... To your point of a business, right? And that's why I said this was a business, and I'm very clear about that. That a business, and as you said, is in is in the profession of care. And Joe, you talked about profession earlier, and I said to someone just the other day, I think we have professionalized the human and the humanity understanding of what it takes to take care of a human being out of all services. Right. We have made such a profession that we have created barriers that people mm -hmm. who could probably do a way better job than the people mm -hmm. who are caring for our folks, but because they need this degree and because they need this certification, because they need that, that, and the third, they no longer, going back to your idea of the peer concept of, peer, of, of harm reduction, the smartest human being, the most caring human being, the reason why I sit in this chair is my grandmother, and I tell folks all the time, I don't know what her education was. You know, some people could say, my grandmother had a six, I don't know what she had, but I know that she had the capacity to build an entire family generations over and she's not even here now if that ain't if that ain't harm reduction i don't know what is but we professionalize that concept out of the work that we do That's right nice. we, we we've taken that out and what cassandra what you're talking about which is the deep thing is the intersectionalities of all of That's these it. of substance yeah, of race of 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 what's considered criminal justice i don't even right. know what means when you really think about what is criminal justice as a just the, the terms alone right 
the it of a foster care of housing and, right. and health care and how all of those things come into the mix. And the one thing I have to say all the time is we always have to be acutely aware, even when we say that we're abolitionists, is to realize that as they've abolished one thing or when we abolish one another. thing, they recreate something mm -hmm. else for us. Right. They That's make and conform. And so when we start talking about what does it mean to be in a system, to yeah. understand what systemic racism is, that we're not talking about good and bad people, that we're talking about a system that just formulates itself. I tell people all the time, Joe, you've heard me say this, Cassandra, <laughs> everyone else to hear and say, it is the greatest amoeba ever created. Yeah. It will change, it will reform, it will split, it will shape, it will, it's like a shapeshifter. The damn thing is like an X-Man, right? right? But the reality of it is, if we don't at least start having these conversations, then we're not gonna be able to talk about reducing any form of harm. Because to your point, Cassandra, we have to first give people hope and healing so that they can have the time and the opportunity to have these conversations. That's right. And right. it has to be informed. And it has to be informed by the healing, right? And I think part of the thing that I've been sitting with, um, we're talking so much on this podcast. Uh, we told no, you. Just, we told you. That's right. We that's told right. you. But, you know, part of the thing that I think is so important is like we, the, the, the system keeps shifting because we keep trying to build in the system. And that is the thing that I'm like, what will it take for us to create an alternative? Mm -hmm. Because if the system keeps shifting because we create it, we are trying to recreate, we're trying to create within the structure they've given us. So like, what is the thing that we need on the outside? And I feel like our communities know that. We already know what that looks like. Think about Susu, right? Think about all the things that we have created that have been outside mm -hmm. and they get destroyed when we try to put them inside of something, right? Because then they lose what they are. And I think there is a world where that we need to create that is outside of the system. And we need, and the place that I'm sitting in, right? The very privileged space to be able to get paid to think and to run campaigns and to organize in which I'm not thinking about um, where's the light bill. I'm not thinking, I, I mean, I'm obviously thinking about how I'm gonna pay these social work loans, but like the, those things, are not as pressing as the things that my mom and dad dealt with, right? Absolutely. They're not as pressing as what my grandma dealt with or like my family in Haiti deals with right now. Like it means that it, it there's more required of people in these positions right. to think through that kind of stuff, to not think about it by ourselves. But right. I think, Saida, I think the thing that I'm coming to in the middle of a worldwide health pandemic in the, in the middle of a terrorist state of our government, in the middle of police killing, we deserve to thrive. And I just want to get to the point where we're having the conversation about what is necessary for us to thrive. And it's not that I want us to jump over our survival because it's crucial. Like COVID shows us it, it's about that time, right? Right, right. Um, but it's like, I want to dream beyond the survival. And I think that's what our ancestors did, right? Well, more importantly, that's that's the whole, that's the only way you actually do make it. 
to another space. You know, um, one of the things I, I used to tell my staff is when you sit down with another human being to do a goal plan, a treatment plan, or whatever plan, ask them what they dreamed of when they were a kid. Ask them what their dreams are now. You know, um, consider yourself to be a dream weaver because what you're talking about is that is how you thrive. You have to actually, you have to dream for something. You have to, and, and you and I are in complete agreement. It's not even about jumping over survival. At some, I, I want a good life. I don't want an okay life. I don't want to just make it. I don't want to just get by. Um, and I think my ancestors deserve that that's not the case. I think what we appreciate, and when we talk about we're just a little bit older than Cassandra, um, what we appreciate, and when we say you're, your, your youth when you bring to the table. And that's why we can't have these conversations siloed and there can't be generational divides in this conversation. And we have to be able to hear each other is I say again, because what we're doing here is a form of harm reduction. It is. And, it is and, a form of harm reduction because what we're trying to do is to ultimately, like you said, figure out how we're going to reduce the harm. Ultimately, you know, we should we should not have to have these conversations, but we do. We do, and we do. And, and I think I, I I mean that I mean I, I could listen to uh, this for an hour because it just strikes so deep. I mean, I mean harm reduction, as as Cassandra said. I mean it's not just you know reducing harm to drugs. It's it's how do we get from scarcity to abundance? You know how do we get now? How do we get from scarcity? to getting to take a break from police misconduct and unemployment, you know, and, and not even to talk about COVID because all, all the while COVID is killing our people, black people, you know, uh, the, the overdose deaths were up 42%, you know? So, you know, when you talked about, I think you mentioned intersectionality, um, uh, 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 intersectionality, I mean, it's it's intersectionality of you know the substance use, race, health equity, policeman, unemployment. I mean, even I, I heard someone say, talking about George Floyd, and I still have not seen yet that video of George Floyd. But uh, if you look at George George Floyd, the outrage was not just the knee on this black man's neck, but it happened in Minneapolis. Why was he in Minneapolis? because he was looking for work, unemployment. The autopsy on George Floyd revealed he had COVID in his lungs, healthcare. He was black. All this stuff uh, weave and wove together to recreate the conditions that we are living under today. And, and I think it was someone who said, and I always say this all the time, that, that a crisis, this crisis, and I think it's no coincidence that Cassandra has taken the helm in the middle of let why why take the helm in the middle of the crisis? <laughs> At least they they gave me the honors. In the middle, this wasn't in the job description, you know. This this uh, but it also that's that's a whole nother point, you know. When they but the the fact that all of these conditions weave and wove and 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 it just shows. The beauty of this conversation, it is larger than just one particular issue. You know, 
those powers that be do want us to, you know, just compartmentalize it, you know, substance use disorder. But, you know, it, it, this is not Kansas. It don't happen in La La Land. This is the real world. And it's connected to systems that are intended, um, and especially that criminal justice system is intended to murder black people, but it will settle for like mass incarceration. You know, that's like, we'll, we'll just settle for that. So, um, you know, this, this, this is definitely connected. What's missing in the conversation right now, right, about the opiate epidemic, right? Like what is missing in the press? What's the conversations that's not being had during COVID? You know, one of the things, um, one of the things that I think in COVID has happened is there's a lot of distractions, right? There's a lot of kind of paying attention to one thing, which happens to us all the time, right? We watch this one thing, we got our eye on one thing and we're not paying attention to right. others. Yeah. But for those of us who are from the streets in some way, you know you gotta keep your eye that on the street. That three-card Monty joint, that three-card find a pebble yeah. under the cup, yeah. You got to keep your eye on the shooter and you got to keep your eye on everybody else. And so what do you think is happening right now or what's missing in the conversation with all this dialogue about COVID, opiate epidemic, violence, police brutality, racial unrest? What's missing? What would you guys like to see the press really cover? I would say, I think I'm really, I think, the coverage is so piecemeal and that they are not looking at people as whole people that even in navigating COVID that people are also navigating other things within COVID and that some people were more prepared for a pandemic than others. You think about, you know, I'm from Manhattan and you could see that people left, that there were people that were able to leave that were like, I don't know what's happening over here, but I'm going to get out of this hotbed and I'm gonna do my own thing. And that to me shows me like, my family, we couldn't leave. We were stuck here. We, you know, I, I often used to be like, well, you know, if stuff gets bad here, I'm gonna go back to Haiti. But like, am I really going back to Haiti? And then it was like, they won't take us, right? They, take my, <laughs> they won't take us with all US citizens now, right? So it's like, it's like, well, I guess we just going to be up in here, gang, gang, you know, in a multi-generational home. And I feel like we, in the opioid crisis, in the overdose crisis, in COVID-19, in the police killing, these are whole people. And I find that in order for people to tell the story that fits in their agenda, they flatten us mm -hmm. and they curate us. And the, 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 the actual thing is, is that some of the people that we're working with that are struggling with, with drug addiction, even if their drug addiction, they, they move through drug addiction and come to a better place with dealing with drugs, they still have other struggles. Yes. And, they, and as amazing as Elmcore and exponents are, they're not giving people everything that they need in order to survive just or even imagine what thriving looks like. Right. And I find that in or, we do problem solving, we raise problems through flattening people's humanity and through flattening the condition that they're navigating. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I find that I wish that the conversations about the overdose crisis would include the unemployment, mm-hmm. would include the industrialization, would include criminalization, would include the fact that a lot of these places that they're dealing with the overdose crisis, they're closing hospitals left and right because hospitals are businesses and they've been incentivized. And if they don't make um, dollars, then it doesn't make sense for people right. to have access to a hospital. As well as housing, yeah. To primary care or have mm-hmm. access to housing. And so I'm finding that even in this moment around human conditions, um, that a lot of it is curated um, and that that impedes our ability to actually deal with the problem. Right. I, I, I agree, um, you know, that and, and you, uh, 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 the point you made, Cassandra, about our agencies, um, Elm Corps exponents, that we, we need to do more. But I, I believe it's intentional that we are not given the resources to do more, that uh, it, you know, the purpose is some type of stasis to maintain the status quo of getting folks through drug treatment with a diploma, and that's it, you're on your own. Um, but uh, I, I think that the, the beauty of it, and Saida mentioned a, a bit about the service, is that, is that what, what's needed is really a, a, a holistic continuum of support through the process. I mean, way past the immediate, um, uh, you know, trauma of addiction or whatever. It does include housing. But, you know, they, they have this word now, you know what Saeed is called, warm handoffs. You know, where, where you finish with somebody and you hand them on to another agency who's also underfunded and who's also, and, and, and there's really no communication. And so um, I, 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 I agree, I, I, I believe that it's intentional that um, the compartmentalization of, um, of, of drug uh, treatment services um, is intentional and the under-resourcing of our agencies uh, is intended to, to maintain that. Um, I would love to see, if possible, some type of network of like-minded agencies that will bring the ruckus to the status quo of funding. Um, you know, we had previous discussions before about, you know, black philanthropy playing a role in this because white folks ain't going to do it. Um, you know, so uh, I, I, and maybe that can be done. Maybe, maybe, you know, I, I know a group of folks, they call themselves UN, uh, that maybe they're crazy enough to do it. Hey, but um, that, that's what I see uh, as it is well. And I appreciate um, both of your comments and what we're talking about. And, and, and as much as Elmcore provides probably more wraparound services than yeah. anyone in the substance use field, I'll say it fully and with no hesitation, but it's because community created it. It's, it's very different in that way. Community created it. So we have senior centers not because we acquired an organization, which happens for a lot of larger agencies. They end up with um, additional complementary services because they've absorbed an organization. For us, this is organized by us. And the reason why I say that is because I 
fully, completely agree with you, Cassandra, when you say that Elmcorn and Exponents, they're not going to get everything from us because organizers know there is no single answer. There is no single space. There is no one, there is no one door. There isn't one person because the way that I was raised, my mother gave me to all her friends. I didn't have one person to go to. I didn't have one aunt. I didn't have her biological family. I had the family that she organized for me. That's right. I had what she organized for me. And so Elmcore exponents, we should never be offended when someone says, and I'm not, and I'm happy that Cassandra has the courage to say, even with all that you do, you're not enough. Because I know that we're not enough. And that's why we're having these conversations. And that's why you guys are here. And that's why we organize. Because we're not going to do this by ourselves. If we go back to the cultural understanding of who we are, the idea that they can only be one of us. That's right. It's a racist concept. That's right. One that I rebuke. And I rebuke it because what I know is the collective is always stronger than the singular. And yeah. it's only when it comes to us that we convince ourselves that it has to be different because we've been told we only got room for one. Okay. And I have to say that that is not the case at all. We organize collectively. We've done a great job tonight in this conversation of organizing and being collective in our thoughts and sharing with people just how we talk, just to have a, just to have a dialogue. Because let's be clear, even when we talk about funding, Joe and I, you know, we have these conversations. I sit in spaces. I know my budget's smaller than most of the folks that I work with, because even though they may be a person of color, they're leading something that might be a historically white organization that had historic white donors. And the reality is we've got to figure this out on our on our things. We're, we're as I always say, we are the family we serve. We truly reflect our community. They fund us the same way they fund our community. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, these are the things proportionate that I, destruction. Yeah. Yeah. And I and I and I I'm happy to have you guys where you are because we give each other cover. That's right. Right. That's what we do. That is the harm that we provided ourselves during this time, this pandemic, during the overdose um, epidemic. And I have yeah. to say, Andrea has purposefully not said the opioid epidemic, and so right. I. Changed my language in she two hit minutes. Me, she hit me to that too. In two uh, minutes, I was like, okay. Years so ago, I never gave her credit. Those epidemics, Because I said, opioid. I said opioid, and she looked at me <laughs> and rolled them Haitian eyes, baby. And I said, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> but it's important that we do that for each other. So it is. We to, do to, We got to, yeah. Because as great as this conversation is, and you guys will be back, we've talked to our listeners before, letting them know that the first six episodes, we're going to have all of our heavy hitters. And then what we're going to do is we're going to freestyle for about three consecutive podcasts. We're just going to, a whole bunch of us, we're just going to go in from week to week. But we're trying to be a little structured. They told us that we should behave ourselves a little bit before, as you said, bring the rock. We did, right? So, so we didn't curse once. Not once. No. <laughs> no. So, on behalf of Elmcore Youth and Adult Activities, we would like to thank you for joining us today. 
Remember to follow us and subscribe on our social media outlets, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and LinkedIn at Elmcorn, and subscribe to our podcast channel on Spotify, SoundCloud, and Apple Podcasts. And I'd like to give you guys an opportunity to let folks know where they can follow you and your agencies. Cassandra, you're younger than Joe, so I'll let you right, go. Right, right. You got all of it already. Just go for so it. So you can follow us um, on Twitter at Drug Policy Org, um, O-R-G. And you can follow us on Instagram at Drug Policy Alliance. We're also on LinkedIn, and we also have a Facebook. And, um, you know, I just want to say thank you again. Um, and look, we look forward to seeing you being back on this podcast as well as um, seeing on social media. Thank you. And you can you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. I'll get you those addresses later because I'm a Luddite, as well as probably on the FBI's super dossiers as well when you look at my history. No, but I, I'm just getting on that. Just want to thank you so much, Saida, um, for the, the spirit of this. And uh, Cassandra, I mean, you, you bring it to life. And um, I am honored to be in your presence. Thank you. So good night, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Good night.